0: Welcome to Folkliar. I'm the Chief Liar, Brian. This episode is nothing but lies. In fact, it's all the lies I've told in 2021. That's right, the lie from every episode done so far as a kind of end of year present. The Book of Folkliar, Chapter 1, if you like. In any case, it's all part of avoiding the December holiday rush and giving me enough time to prepare for the next year. So sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to some completely made-up stories all in one go. And remember, you can support Fiddleback Productions on buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com/fiddleback. No guesses this time. It's all lies. Oh, speaking of lies, last episode we took a look at tales from Cajun country and presented three stories that were definitely entirely Cajun in origin. You heard about the innkeeper and the cider, Foolish John, and Boquie and Lappin, two rabbits with a garden. I warned you things were going to be extra tricky this time around, and clearly I was correct. Only Wit M. managed to spot that the innkeeper and the cider wasn't a genuine Cajun tale. So congratulations to Wit on winning the luxurious mug, and commiserations to the rest of you. But thanks to all of you for listening and taking a guess. See you next year. Once, a woman sent her husband down to the sea to fish. She sent him out to fish because the cupboard at home was bare, and she didn't particularly feel like going down to the market itself. She'd been up all night mending socks, which was fair enough. The man went through an awful lot of socks, and it was very time-consuming to darn them all up again. So she sent him off to do the fishing while she stayed at home resting. When he arrived at the edge of the sea, he discovered he'd left his can of bait sitting at home on the table, which was no doubt going to get him into further trouble later. Since he didn't want to walk all the way home and back again and put more holes in his socks for his wife to mend, he started looking around for something he could use to convince a fish to bite his hook. The first thing he found was a juicy, fat grasshopper. He scooped it up in his hat and looked down on it. "'Mr. Grasshopper,' said he, "'how would you like to dance and shimmy and entertain the fishes?' But the grasshopper was uninterested in dancing and shimmying and entertaining the fishes and, sensing a trick, he hopped out of the hat and away down the shore. The next thing the man found was a shiny black cricket. He scooped it up in his hat and looked down on it. "'Mr. Cricket,' he said, "'how would you like to dance and shimmy and entertain the fishes?' But the cricket was uninterested in dancing and shimmying and entertaining the fishes, and, sensing a trick, he hopped out of the hat and away down the shore. Finally, after looking around for quite some time for something else suitable to put on a hook and entice fish with, the man found a wriggly long earthworm under a rotted old log. He scooped it up in his hat and looked down on it. Mr. Earthworm, he said, how would you... Like to dance and shimmy and entertain the fishes. But the earthworm couldn't hop away out of the hat and down the shore, and instead sat there dancing and shimmying in the bottom of the hat, which the man took to mean yes, and having found exactly the right bait, had fish for dinner that night, and nice neat socks for his feet in the morning. When their father died, three brothers were finally forced to get work and provide for themselves. Each of the brothers took what little money was left and split it up among themselves. Since the brothers considered him too dumb to notice, somehow the youngest, Ashlad, ended up with less than the other two. The two older brothers set out to the east and the west, but the Ashlad stayed where he was, wondering what he might do to improve his lot. Without having to go to too much trouble. He thought for some time before deciding what to do. Weeks passed, and eventually Ash Lad's oldest brother returned. He'd failed to find his fortune, but was confident he could trick his youngest brother out of his share of the money and try again, since the lad was such a fool. Brother, said the oldest, "'I've had no luck making my way in the world. "'I've lost all the money I had and returned poor and hungry. Uh, "'Tell me, what have you done with your share?' "'Ashlad thought for a moment and said, "'Well, I'm no better off than I was when you left. "'I buried the coins out in the field and am waiting for them to grow. "'But so far nothing has happened.' What a fool my brother is, thought the oldest brother to himself. The money will certainly do me more good than it ever will him. That night, after supper, when the oldest brother was sure Ash Lad was asleep, he crept out of the house and into the field, where he began digging furiously for the coins with a shovel he found there. But not knowing where to dig, and not daring to ask his brother about their location lest his plan be discovered, he was unable to find any trace of the coins. The next morning, finding his oldest brother asleep in bed late into the morning, the Ash Lad set off for town. While he was gone, the middle brother returned home with much the same story as the first. When he explained his circumstances to the oldest brother, the oldest brother told him about the money buried in the field, and both men resolved to get it for themselves and split it between them. They spent the rest of the day digging everywhere around the field, looking for the hidden money. In the evening, Ashlad returned home carrying a large sack of grain. He found his brothers in the field, exhausted, but still digging, and when he called out to them, they jumped up with a start at fear of being discovered. "'It's good to see you will both work hard for my money,' said Ashlad. "'If only you had thought to work hard for your own!' "'Never mind, though.' You can both still work hard for me, for I have taken my money to town and bought this sack of grain, and if you will just take some and scatter it around this freshly dug field of ours in the morning, I'm sure we can all live well enough when the harvest comes in. And so they did. Once, when the world was young, first man awoke one morning to find all the people starving. At first, he did not know why, so he went to First Woman, who was always happy to tell him what to do, and asked what he could do about it. "'You old fool,' said First Woman. "'The people are starving because First Salmon has gone and taken all the other salmon with him.' "'But where has he gone, and why has he left?' asked First Man. "'Go and look,' replied First Woman, "'and stop getting in my way. I have chores to do.' "'So—' First Man went out and came down to the river where all the people were complaining and starving. First Salmon has left us and taken all his tribe with him. We have nothing to eat and we'll certainly die. What can we do? I don't know yet, said First Man, but let me look and see what I can see. So he began walking up river, looking for First Salmon and his tribe. Eventually, First Man came to a great waterfall, probably the first waterfall, and looked up at it. It seemed to him that something heavy and silvery hung over the edge of the first waterfall, splashing in the water, but not falling down. I wonder what that is, thought First Man. It looks a bit like First Salmon, but it's hard to tell from here. I will have to climb up. And so he did. Very slowly he climbed up the cliff face until he was near the top and looked over at what indeed turned out to be First Salmon. First Salmon! Why are you not down feeding my people, who are even now starving to death? Can you not see? asked First Salmon. I am caught in a net laid across the falls by First Giant and cannot get free. I swam up here with all my family in the spring, but now that it is time to go back down, I cannot. If you don't wish to see all your family starve, First Man, help me, and I shall promise you some of my family to feed your own. Very well, I will find First Giant and get him to set you free, but remember your promise. And First Man went looking for First Giant. First Giant was in his tent at the top of the falls preparing for a feast. He knew very well that he had all the salmon at his disposal and was sharpening his knife in preparation for more salmon than he could possibly eat. First Man found him just as First Giant was leaving his tent to gather all the salmon. First Giant!' called out First Man. "'My people are starving because of you. "'Can you not spare even one fish for others?' "'What about me, then?' asked First Giant. "'Would you have me starve, too, "'because I could not get enough fish to satisfy me? "'Besides, what would one fish do "'to keep all your tribe from starving? "'I am but one giant, while your people are many.' Let me show you what one fish would do for my people. Give me one, that I may work my secret magic, and make a stew that will satisfy even you, and let me borrow your knife to prepare it with, answered first man. Hungry as he was, first giant agreed, and gave first man one salmon from all those he had trapped, and his knife to prepare it with. First Man cut the salmon open and began to work his magic. He danced and danced in many circles around the salmon, and each time his circle took him near the water, he would reach in and grab out a stone to slip into the fish. When the fish was full of stones, he put it in First Giant's cooking pot, and then used First Giant's bucket to take water from the river and pour it into the pot. Every trip First Man made with the bucket, he slipped rocks inside the bucket as well. Soon, First Man had a great cauldron of very little fish, and quite a large number of rocks. All this he put over First Giant's fire and set to boiling. "'Now you must be sure to drink the whole thing down at once,' said First Man. "'Otherwise it won't fill you up properly, and you'll only want more.' First Giant agreed that he would do so, as he was very hungry indeed by now, and when First Man looked into the pot and saw that everything was as hot as hot could be, he told First Giant to gulp it down and enjoy.' Well, First Giant did. He opened his giant mouth wide and poured everything in the pot into it and swallowed it all in one go, just as he'd been told. But then the rocks settled, and First Giant's belly began to burn and burn. And no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't make it stop until he was forced to drag himself, slowly because of all the rocks in him, to the river for a cold drink of river water. And when he leaned down to put his face in the water, First Man cut his throat and watched as First Giant bled into the water until it ran red. And then he died. Then First Man went and cut loose First Salmon and his family, reminding him about his promise. For Salmon thanked him and kept his promise. But to this day, because First Giant bled into the water, Salmon's flesh is always bright and pink. pays to be extra careful around creek beds and wetlands. The savvy wanderer in these sorts of environments would do well to keep their head down and mind their step at the best of times, especially if they want to avoid being thrown for soaking and risk drowning, or maybe even eaten. The snag leg is a long, thin beast with feet only at the front and sharp hooks for claws. Its eyes are said to glow purple, and its skin is green and covered with little needle-like hooks of its own, such as are found on the paws of kittens. They are between six to eight feet long, and their hard, sinewy bodies are ideally suited to their preferred method of hunting. They lay in wait in the shadowy undergrowth beside pathways and game trails in areas where water is present, and when their keen eyes sense movement, they lash out at their prey and latch onto it. Being built extremely low to the ground, the snag-leg, as its name implies, frequently grabs hold of its prey by the legs and wraps its entire body around the intended victim, causing them to trip and fall. Held in place by its strong grip, the snag-leg entangles them with its hooks and claws, and it soon becomes nearly impossible to escape without a great deal of effort. Particularly vulnerable are those persons outfitted in wool clothing of any sort, they socks or sweaters. What it intends to do with its catch is not entirely clear, since it is known to take both people and animals of quite considerable size compared to itself. Speculation is rife, though. Many hunters claim that the snag leg's intent is to trip someone carrying a firearm in the hope that the sudden fall will discharge the gun and terminate the bearer. Others suggest that the creature's real goal, since they inhabit watery areas, is to throw their victims into any convenient body of water and drown them. Either way, once dispatched, it is presumed the snag-leg drags its victim into the underbrush, where they are then consumed. Only those with sufficient luck, or the good sense to carry a sharp knife with which to cut themselves free, stand a chance of surviving a snag-leg attack. Several efforts have been made over the years to mitigate the threat of snag-legs, in areas where they are found. Attempts have been made to popularize hunting them, but since they return unpalatable meat and their skin is unsuitable for leathering, there's been little success. Some have suggested burning them out is the way to go, but this is detrimental to other forest-related activities and more reasonable critters. It too has failed to catch on as a method of control. The only effective and practical means of control yet discovered was invented by Northern Idaho timber boss Gus Olofsson in 1903. After suffering and surviving a serious snag-leg attack while walking along Granite Creek surveying a new timber unit, Gus returned to camp and ordered the cookhouse stove dismantled. He then took the stovepipe to the camp blacksmith with instructions to use it as a pattern. Using the resulting metallic sleeves as a sort of oversock, he ordered his men to wear them at all times around their ankle regions, and the local population of snag legs was soon starved out, though it did become somewhat more difficult to run clear of felled trees. On the night of July 4, 1863, all was quiet in the White House. Independence Day celebrations had been brief and muted, With the U.S. Civil War still in full swing, it was hard to know what to celebrate. Just the day before, the three-day-long Battle of Gettysburg had been concluded, and while the Union had won the battle, over 50,000 Americans had died. Meanwhile, the Siege of Vicksburg had just completed its 46th day. All this and more weighed heavily on the mind of Abraham Lincoln, and as a result he was finding it difficult to sleep. He'd spent many long days, and even longer nights, pacing the halls and rooms of the White House recently, the weight of a country at war on his mind. On this particular night, Lincoln had just completed his fourth or fifth circuit from the first floor east room, up the grand staircase to the second floor, down to the eastern end of the central corridor, and back again. Perhaps it gave Lincoln some comfort to be able to look out the window at the end of the hall, well past midnight, and see lights on across the lawn at the Treasury Department, Salmon P. Chase possibly hard at work. Perhaps not. Lincoln turned to retrace his steps back to the grand staircase. He began to hear the sound of footsteps coming, slowly and methodically, up the stairs at the far end. Thinking it might be one of his aides coming with a message about the war, he picked up his own pace to meet them. Oddly, when the footsteps should have reached the top of the stairs, nothing was visible to Lincoln in the dim light of the nighttime corridor. Still, the footsteps could be heard approaching, this time across the carpeted floor of the upper landing, headed in Lincoln's direction. Lincoln, thanks to his wife Mary Todd, had become something of a spiritualist. While disconcerting, disembodied footsteps were not a cause for fear for Lincoln, rather for curiosity, and so he continued to approach the source of the sound. As he neared the location of the slow tread on the floor, an indistinct grey figure began to take shape from out of the darkness. It was tall and thin, and seemed to be dressed in funeral wear. The face was impossible to decipher at their present distance, but there was something about the overall shape of the figure which seemed familiar to him. As they neared each other, the figure, never quickening its steps, seeming, as it appeared to Lincoln, to be deep in thought, it suddenly became clear to him who this apparition was. What Lincoln was seeing was himself, dressed as if attending a funeral, but concerned even so with matters of state. As they neared each other, the ghostly Lincoln turned aside and entered the room leading to Lincoln's own bedroom. As Lincoln followed, his other self faded from view. For a few moments, Lincoln contemplated what this could all mean. Was it a premonition of death? If so, whose? If not... What else could it mean? Or was it but the imaginings of his overworked mind? Whatever it meant, whatever he had seen, Lincoln decided to follow the one piece of concrete advice he had given himself in the brief encounter. He went to bed. In a certain kingdom, in a certain land, there lived a bear. It was but a little bear still young and inexperienced. All the bears in the kingdom would get together once a year and discuss the affairs of bears within the kingdom. And each year the little bear would meet all its aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and sisters and brothers and every other bear there was. And he would hear how each bear was doing and what their prospects were for the next year. And in this way the business of bears was conducted. However, At the end of each meeting, there would be a long pause. When Little Bear asked about the long pause, he was told it was for all the bears who didn't make it to the meeting that year and wouldn't be coming ever again. But why won't they come to the meeting again, he asked one of his many cousins. Because they grew up to be big, strong bears and then went away. The people came and saluted them for being so big and strong and then gave them a log ride and they had so much fun, they never came back. Cousin Bear didn't mean any of it, but didn't want to tell Little Bear the truth, that men hunted bears and killed them, and that was why they never came back. Cousin Bear was afraid Little Bear would be upset, and so lied, but only out of kindness. But Little Bear didn't know any better, and was a bit foolish anyway, and so believed Cousin Bear. From that day forward, he resolved to be the biggest and strongest bear there ever was, and so go to the place where there was so much fun, he wouldn't want to come back. For the next year, Little Bear busied himself eating everything he could, and getting as strong as he could by climbing every tree and pushing every log, and he took care to let his claws grow long and his teeth sharp, so that there could be no doubt. And when the yearly bear meeting came around again, He compared himself to all the other bears, but found there were bears bigger and stronger than him yet, and so went to work for the next year, trying to be the biggest and strongest bear there ever was. And so it went for many years. He ate everything he could find. In fact, he ate so much that the other bears had trouble feeding themselves, and as little bear got bigger and bigger, they got smaller and smaller, until finally, one year, Little Bear was the biggest and strongest of all the bears in the kingdom. He just knew he was going to be picked to go to the place where bears had so much fun they didn't want to come back. Cousin Bear had been picked the year before, and Little Bear couldn't wait to see him again and show off how much bigger he was. Little Bear was so excited he went straight down to the town to show himself to the men there. And you can guess what happened. That's right, Little Bear was the biggest bear any of them had ever seen, and that winter, all the villagers had brand new bearskin hats. The other day, I sent the Baron a letter concerning a bit of minor mischief my cat had gotten into. This was his reply. Your interesting missive has reminded me of the time I found myself stranded on the Indian continent with nothing more than a hatpin and a container of peanut butter from Suriname with which to survive a series of vicious tiger attacks and rescue His Majesty's forces then under my command. I was stationed in Punjab as part of His Majesty's Expeditionary Force. We had been some time in marching through the vast jungles of India and supplies were running low. Men were beginning to starve, and already some errant nibbling had occurred. Being the most sound member of our group, I was sent out to secure supplies for the rest of the men and myself. I selected the next three most able men to accompany me, two of whom had been reduced to but one leg in the company's efforts to stave off starvation. Still, they were the most hale and hearty of the bunch that remained, and we set out to bravely rescue our fellows if we could." We took with us the last remaining half-tin of peanut butter, with which to sustain ourselves in the hopes of returning with a much greater reward. As you well know, the foliage is dense and impenetrable in this part of India, so much so that we were unable to reckon the time of day by the simple act of viewing the sun. The overhanging, thick, seemingly endless canopy obscured our view, and a great darkness accompanied all aspects of our journey. Frequently the only light we had to see by was the glow of healthy optimism that pervaded our faces, and even that was beginning to fade from the faces of my companions, though of course I myself was undaunted. Where the Baron goes, so too does hope. It soon became obvious to me that we must determine the time of day, and thereby gauge our progress, and so make the journey by the most direct possible route. For if the companions in my presence were losing heart, how much worse must it be for those denied my constant association. I ordered one of our group up a nearby tree, which I judged tall enough to peek above our concealing layer of foliage. Instead of the swift accomplishment of the task I was accustomed to, he complained bitterly about the difficulty of the climb, having been one of those who had earlier made a noble sacrifice to save us from hunger. I therefore sent also a second one-legged man up the tree with him, impeccably reasoning that between the two of them they had just enough legs and twice as many arms as required for the task, and so the ascent should be at least half as easy as it would have been for my fully equipped man. Upon achieving the top of the tree, both gentlemen raised an unholy ruckus containing many words and phrases... "'unsuitable to the mouths of men in service to the king, "'and sure to damage even your coarse sensibilities. "'Therefore, I shall refrain from reproducing them here.' "'They let go their grips upon the limbs of the tree "'and plummeted to the ground, breaking one leg each. "'Fortunately, it was the leg they had already lost, "'and no harm was done to us.' though I did hear later that several of the men left behind at camp developed mysterious kinks about their abdomens, which took several weeks to return to normal. After admonishing the men about their language, I inquired as to the cause of their terror. These two normally stout-hearted men were notably ashen and could only babble incoherently, as if some great fear had come over them. Finally resolving myself to put an end to this matter, I began an ascent of the tree on my own, not knowing what I would find. Taking firm grip of my boots, I pulled myself straight up into the air by my bootstraps, and several feet up along the trunk of the tree, thereby coining that now well-known phrase. Reaching the limits of even my own prodigious strength, I then reached out and grabbed hold of the trunk to continue my climb. I made short work of the intervening distance, and cautiously interposed my eyes above the topmost branches. I instantly ascertained that we were well past the hour when all good and honest men should be abed. They say honest men sleep best, and as if to prove the matter, I immediately broke into an expansive, all-encompassing yawn. If anyone should have been at his rest before now, it was most definitely myself. It was well that I did so, though, for nestled in a small group atop the very same tree— was a pack of the most foul, vicious Indian tigers any man could hope to encounter. They too had climbed the tree in order to decipher the time, for tigers prowl at night, and it would not do for them to be out in the daylight where they may easily be seen. They were a hungry lot, perhaps even as hungry as ourselves, though in the brief moment I had to see them, they did seem to be in full possession of their own limbs. Upon spotting me, they, perhaps sensing an easy meal though they knew me not, leapt at me as one in an effort to bring me within their clutches. Naturally, they had not paused to evaluate the situation before they attacked. Perhaps they would have spared themselves disaster if they had. My yawn was so large and my hunger so great that the tigers might as well have flung themselves into one of the bottomless pits of hell as attacked me. They were immediately encapsulated within my mouth, having left there of their own accord in their haste. Reflexively I swallowed, and, though the fur of their body did tickle somewhat as they passed my tonsils, they soon found themselves within my stomach. Four tigers in all entered my throat, and not one remained atop the tree. I descended the tree rapidly, hampered only somewhat by the internal struggle, as each tiger attempted to assign to the others the blame for their present predicament, and escape at the same time. Their roaring and howling was something of a distraction, as was their constant nipping at my insides. It seemed to me that if it were allowed to continue, I might eventually suffer sufficiently to require some bicarbonate of soda, though no local sources existed, and it would therefore entail another expedition entirely, one which I was not prepared at that time to undertake. I climbed swiftly down and rejoined my men, Keeping my jaws carefully shut, lest one should escape, I explained, by means of a sign language of my own invention, the situation to my fellows. They were intelligent men, and quickly understood what I would have them do. They brought me the half-jar of peanut butter, and I took from my hat a ten-inch hat-pin that I kept about my person for just such an occasion. Handing the jar to my single two-legged companion, I waved my other companions, one to each side, where they took firm grasp of my belt. Once ready, I gave the sign to start my plan. As my two monopodal fellows tightened the belt about my waist, the tigers began to rise up out of my stomach and into my throat. Opening my mouth only slightly, my man with the jar could observe the flashing teeth and gaping maws of the enraged tigers. Quickly, using the flat of a boot knife, he daubed peanut butter into each tiger's mouth, securely gumming them shut this being the chief characteristic of Suriname peanut butter. Once all the tigers had been subjected to this treatment, I began jabbing the hat pin down my throat, forcing each tiger back down and into my gut once more, as the men on my belt gradually loosened their hold. Once they were down, I myself took a great helping of the peanut butter and sealed my own mouth shut, thus cutting off any exit they may have had in that direction, while my belt was left somewhat tighter than normal, for reasons which no gentleman should have to explain. Thus encumbered, and with the situation well in control, we made our way back to camp where the peanut butter was carefully removed from my jaws, and each man in His Majesty's expeditionary force dined spectacularly on peanut butter stuffed tiger for several days thereafter. So that you may know me to be truthful and honest in all things, I have included the very hatpin I used. Yours as ever, Baron Munchausen. In the back of the back bayou, there was a man who ran an inn. It was not a very profitable business, and he made a meager living day to day on the one or two patrons who came by on their way to somewhere else. So when a traveling salesman happened upon the inn during a storm and had the look of money about him, the innkeeper saw an opportunity to improve his fortunes. The peddler had traveled a long, difficult road across country better traveled by boat than wagon, made worse by the gale and torrential rain outside. Soaked to the skin, the salesman took a seat at the bar and ordered a drink to warm himself. Where are you from? "'asked the innkeeper as he filled the salesman's glass. "'North, mostly,' said the salesman, "'in an accent more suited to the busy shops and offices of the city "'than a ramshackle inn deep in the back country. "'What do you sell?' "'Odds and ends, things folks need. "'Life improvements,' answered the stranger, "'taking a healthy swig of the local brew. "'Fair enough,' said the innkeeper, "'and went back to his business while eyeballing the stranger "'to see how much he might be worth.' The storm lasted three full days, but at last broke. When the sun came out again, the traveling salesman decided to be on his way and thanked the innkeeper for his hospitality before asking to settle the bill. Now, the innkeeper had no reason to suspect he'd ever see the salesman again. After all, he was a stranger in these parts and only sought shelter at the inn because of the storm. So, there couldn't be much harm in overcharging the man... And the innkeeper set the price for three nights' shelter at ten dollars, nearly twice the going rate. Without a word of complaint, the salesman paid it, and in his delight at the sum, the innkeeper offered the man a free mug of cider for the road. The northerner took a drink of the cider and molded over. You know, he said, this cider is pretty good but it would make an even better apple brandy if you converted it with a new process I'm selling. I've got all the equipment for it if you're interested. You could make a fortune off it. Well, the innkeeper said he would certainly like to hear all about this process and how he could convert his cider to brandy, and eventually the two men agreed to a deal. In a show of good faith, for $10 up front, the salesman would show him how to do the conversion, and when the cider turned to brandy the innkeeper could pay him the remaining $50 for the equipment. The innkeeper agreed this was more than fair. So both men went into the cellar where stood a giant cask of cider. The peddler examined the barrel carefully and, selecting a spot low down to one side, poured a hole into it. He instructed the innkeeper to jam his thumb into the hole to hold back the cider and wait while he went out and got the special converter equipment from his cart. The innkeeper eagerly jammed his thumb into the cask and waited while the salesman went upstairs, finished off his mug of cider, and drove off in the wagon. Enjoy your holidays.